This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. It is now June, which means it is Pride Month. A few years ago, Sammy Felchenfeld was on episode 112, Celebrating Queer Cinema, where we talked about our favorite LGBT and Q plus films, which included stuff like The Kids Are Alright, Brokeback Mountain, Itu Mama Tambien, Tangerine, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, and more. One of my favorite podcasts is Bad Gay Movies, where each episode, Bill Antoniou, his co-host Daniel Krolik and Michael Soulard, and a variety of guests talk about the best bad gay films. The podcast subtitle is Bitchy Gay Men, so it's always enjoyable listening to Bill and company dissect the nonsense of some not-so-great films. But as a fan of the show, I've always been curious about what gay-themed movies Bill actually loved, so I asked if he'd come on the podcast to talk about some good gay movies, trademark that. Uh, I also always wanted to be a guest on his show, but I don't think I quite fit the criteria, so I did the next best thing and asked him to be on to help recreate the magic. You last heard Bill on episode a few episodes ago on show 237, A24 Retrospective While We're Young. So welcome back, Bill. How are you doing today? I'm very well. I actually do like to have a token straight man every once in a while on bad game movies. So, you know, I'm just, it's possible. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Dream keep big, that in mind, Dakota. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I know you also recently did an episode with your, uh, with a, uh, your token female guest as well. So, yes. you know. Yeah, I like to have at least uh, like a, a token straight man and or a stra- uh, token female on uh, mm-hmm. on the show to go by to go by the way we used to classify people back in my day. I think uh, I think I've already <laughs> I think I've already shown my age by res- describing anyone as straight or female. So, <laughs> uh, well, when I approached you with the idea, I wanted your input on on how to frame the episode mm-hmm. and what movies to discuss. And we ended up going with movies that were important to you as a young gay man. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about Madonna, Truth or Dare, directed by Alex, I hope I say this right, Kesheshian. Yeah, Alec, a, not Alex. Yeah. Alex, sorry, Alec Kesheshian, a concert documentary following Madonna on her blonde ambition tour, combining onstage performances at the height of her fame mm-hmm. with behind the scenes access showing Madonna's personal relationships tour life and hanging out with their dancers there's also jeffrey directed by christopher ashley which is a comedy i'm going to emphasize the comedy part about a man who decides to give up having sex as he tries to navigate his dating life during the aids crisis and clueless directed by amy heckerling which is a modern retelling on jane of jane austen's classic novel emma about a young girl who tries to play matchmaker but ignores people's actual feelings including her own these were all movies that came out between 1991 and 1995 before we get into full discussions about these films, I'd love to know why these movies were impactful to you or how they shaped you as a gay man. Wow, that's a big question. Um, uh, I think anyone who has ever come out in any variation of queer will tell you that it's not really a light switch where you suddenly realize, oh, I'm this, and then you make a decision of whether or not to tell people. It's kind of a, a process of erosion uh, over time where, you know, feelings exist, feelings grow, uh, often in tandem with the feelings that come with, you know, puberty and hormones sort of uploading into your body. Um, and these kind of negotiations that you make in your mind of like, am I really this, or am I just kind of this, you know, I mean, the first time I, I felt what I thought was falling in love with a boy, it was just a boy I went to school with. And I was a boy too, just in case that sounds (laughs) sketchy. Um, (laughs) uh, I remember thinking like, oh, I'm, 
I'm quote unquote normal. It's just that he's the exception that I'm making to my otherwise sort of normal state because he's just so special, you know, and I think that's a very common experience for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that you are coming into an awareness of yourself as something that the world in general doesn't have a good feeling about, especially back in my day. And I also grew up, you know, my parents aren't super religious, but my mother comes from a very Christian Protestant family. And I grew up at a Christian school. Um, I did consider myself a believer for a long time, although I've happily been an atheist for a very long time. Uh, so these are all things that are in the mix. And then of course you add to that popular culture and the way that it reinforces what you're feeling, challenges what you're feeling, comforts what you're feeling in many ways. And so I'm sure that if I went through the list of everything that had an impact on me, it would be a very, very, very long list. Uh, but these are the three films that come closest or, or quickest to mind, partly because they're all films that I've seen many times. I rewatched them all this week in preparation for this. And I found myself thinking, why am I rewatching these? I know all of these entirely <laughs> off by heart. My friend Chrissy, hi Chrissy, and I used to recite Madonna's Truth or Dare to each other in full on the phone all the time. So... Um, so basically, uh, I mean, we'll get into it in detail, but you have one film that breaks through in terms of, uh, the way gay characters are presented in teen movies in a really significant way. You have a film in which, uh, there are real gay men who terrified and excited me. And then you have this lovely comedy in which the world of being gay man is so colorful and appealing and, romantic and sexy that I, I mean, after I saw Jeffrey, I came out because it just made it seem so appealing to me. Oh, wow. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was obviously, you know, watching these three movies and trying to piece together what parts of the essence of Bill do they speak to? And so it was very interesting to sort of look at them because it, like you were saying sort of explicitly, Jeffrey is the the only one of the three that the story, the central tenant of the story is about a gay character, mm -hmm. whereas the other two have gay characters on the periphery, more so uh, on the periphery of Clueless where it's sort of a subplot, whereas Madonna, it's, you know, the whole culture yeah. uh, is sort of infused into that movie. So it's sort of interesting to see these three wildly different movies in in how they might have been impactful for you is it was something very interesting to, to watch and, and sort of keep that in the back of my mind well gay characters on the periphery is what is all i knew to expect uh, and i think mm -hmm. it's all that anyone of my generation and before knew to expect and i think because you're like a decade behind me so uh my best friend's wedding comes out in when i'm 20 which is around the same time as like ellen comes out and then will and grace is a minute later and then the culture changes completely. And so I think you're not as used to the world before that as I was. Like I actually came of age in the world before that, where to see a gay character who wasn't made fun of, killed off, or it, it, I mean, sometimes they could be killed off, maybe in, in a way that wasn't so negative, but, but who was not the butt of the joke and who was not presented as the as a failure of society or something that was interrupting the way good people live, which is how I was raised to see like you generally you would wince every time you found out a character was gay. Cause you were preparing yourself for being insulted or hurt in some way. And when you weren't, I think you gave films a lot more credit than they necessarily deserved because of that, because you were just so used to it being a negative experience. So 
it's not really that surprising that my choices are all, or f- for the most part, characters where it's in the periphery. Because don't forget, these th- two of them are mainstream films that are seen by everybody, and then mm-hmm. within them, you have gay characters being presented in in illegitimate light, and in a way that that makes more of a difference than an independent film that's only going to preach to the converted. Yeah, and I sort of realized that afterwards because Jeffrey as we're going to get into really did feel like it was, you know, living in this independent world, despite the fact that it had, you know, some very notable stars Mm -hmm. in it. Um, mainly Patrick Stewart as the, the second lead in it. But it was, it was absolutely fascinating to sort of see because it really sort of felt like a movie similar to, but I'm a cheerleader or Mm -hmm. something like that, where, where you're really playing up the campiness to be like, Hey, we're super low budget. We know that, but we're going to make this as enjoyable as possible. Even if you sort of notice the cracks in the seams of uh, the, the, the literal sets we've built. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time it's, but by the time the, of the era of, but I'm a cheerleader is when you have the independent movement in full swing. So you do have a lot of big actors appearing in projects like that all the time. And also I remember going to the theater and seeing small independent gay movies all the time in the early two thousands. Uh, Jeffrey is kind of ahead of that curve coming out in 1995. People think that being a star is about being fabulous, being in the spotlight, having your picture taken all the time and having everyone worship and adore you. Being rich, 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 having it all. And you know what? They're absolutely right. I'm so desperate. For what, honey? For some fun. Well, uh, I'd love to get started with the first one, Madonna, Truth or Dare. I'm mm-hmm. going to just go in chronological sure. order of when they came out. This one did come out in 1991. Mm-hmm. And so as I say at the top, it's it's a concert documentary. Everyone has seen concert documentaries a million times, so they sort of know the format. You know, you, you kind of got two different types of concert documentaries. One where it's exclusively about the music mm-hmm. and one that sort of shows the the backstage, the preparation, everything that goes into it. And, and sort of this movie is very interestingly combines both of it, something I find is more and more rare because it seems to be one or the other these days. And it was beautifully shot where the concert performances were all in color. And then all the backstage stuff outside of the live performances was black and white. It's got this real nice film grain to it. And so it's so it's, it's very interesting to watch so I'm curious about like the first time you watched this and, and how it hit you. Were you, or I assume you're already a Madonna fan when you watched it for the first time. Oh yes. Yeah. I always liked her, even though as a really, cause my first Madonna video I saw when I was like six years old, just, she's been in my life, my, my whole life. Uh, although Cindy Lauper was my favorite when I was really little, uh, which is as gay as it gets. But <laughs> by the time of like the true blue Papa don't preach era is when Madonna just became the coolest person in the world to me. And then, of course, Truth or Dare is the Blonde Ambition show. That's like Vogue, Dick Tracy. That's peak Madonna, basically. This is her at the very, very height of her powers. She is literally the most famous person in the world. And so, of course, this movie comes out, and I wasn't going to miss it to save my life. And I I still remember that night extremely well. It was June of 1991. I was going to turn 14 a a month later. I remember it all. We went to Fairview Mall Theater to see it. Um, and I was so, so, so excited and I loved every second of it. And then I bought the video cassette and I watched it a hundred billion times. And then, and then s- since then, I, I think I bought it on Laserdisc as well. And now I have it on Blu-ray. 
Um, and watching it this week, I hadn't seen it in a long time, but it's all there, the whole thing. If I'm ever like trapped in um, like prison for hundreds of years and, and I'm not allowed to watch anything, I can just play Truth or Dare in my mind from beginning to mm-hmm. end and not miss a moment of it. Um, and it was a culture shock thing for me uh, because... Well, first of all, actually, you talked about various kinds of concert films. So she actually hired Alec Kashishian based on, I think, uh, he, had, he had made like a college film that she liked, probably because she felt she could get him cheap. Um, she hired him to actually film the concert itself. And then at some point got the idea to also like capture a few things backstage. And she just liked what he was filming so much that she decided to make that the film. Which, of course, kind of came to bite her in the ass when there were lawsuits involved from people, uh, three of her dancers and other people have had things to say about it because they were basically told that they were being filmed for diary purposes and not for this major motion picture. Um, But they all signed releases. So, you know, whatever. Uh, So, yeah. So the effect it had on me, particularly when it comes to the dancers. I mean, I was 14. These guys, I'm only realizing now watching it again, how young they were. They were they're all like 21 years old. Uh, and of course, to me at 14, they all seemed like full grown adults, you know, um, who have, they terrified me. I mean, they were so catty and mean in a way that I, at that age, you know, being a suburban kid who had grown up at a Christian school, I didn't really understand the camaraderie of that the way that I would later on uh, and the way that I would become later on. And mm-hmm. so there's something unapologetic and ripe about them. And that's something that Madonna really wanted to showcase even to the point of going against their own wishes. I mean, one of the dancers who sued her was because he asked her not to include that very famous scene of the two dancers kissing. Uh, and she refused. She's like, you signed, you know, you signed your, the waiver and I don't have to do what you want. Uh, and he has since passed away. Um, and his mother still has things to say about Madonna for it. But, uh, but, you know, that made an impression. I mean, I still remember that scene in the theater when people started screaming. And I mean screaming when they saw that. And I don't remember feeling one way or the other about it just because I think I was just so uncomfortable by the reaction to it. And um, and so, yeah, it just, the way that she had these men front and center as something exciting. I don't know that she was presenting it as a sort of like a legit, like legitimate people in a legitimate world because they are, they're dancers on, in a, on a concert tour. You know, I'm not seeing them living their happy, normal lives, but it was, um, it was really tantalizing to me, but it did not connect me with me at all in terms of how I felt about myself or where, where I was at that point in my development of my self-awareness. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, 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 this was an interesting movie for me to watch. I, I never was a big Madonna fan, but watching this, I really appreciate her live performances because I thought they were all absolutely incredible. They were, they were captured very vividly. Um, it's the best thing about her career. Like if anyone wants to take pot shots at Madonna for anything else, her voice, her songwriting, her acting, uh, <laughs> fair, but like no one does a live show better than she does. And I find that even when I show her concerts to people who don't like her at all, they still love them. Like there's just some, it, and it's her having a good time. Like she has an energy when she's performing live that mm-hmm. really translates to the audience. And it's still, it still seems that way. Like even now, all these years later, I still find that whatever else you can say about her. And I know she gets criticism for the way she looks now and all that stuff, but you get her up on that stage and she, as she herself says, I still feel lifted up off my feet whenever I'm performing live. So, 
Yeah. I, I, I think for me, the issue with the movie was more so the behind the scenes stuff. It really felt like Madonna was basically doing a performance of what we would think a normal person <laughs> for sure would act like. Well, there's, and there are parts of this documentary that I would bet my money are completely staged. I know people like yeah. her brother has said that certain parts are staged. I'm sure they are. I don't think that that phone call with her dad is everything you think it is. Um, she definitely has a narrative in mind and, mm-hmm. and that's okay. The thing that a lot of people who criticize Madonna don't realize that her fans don't need you to tell them that she's full of shit because that's kind of what we <laughs> like about her. Like yeah. the fact that she's kind of a bitch and a brat and full of shit is part of the appeal. So don't think that you're like, you know, uh, tearing apart our notions of her by revealing that and finding out the parts of this movie aren't, uh, you know, full verite doesn't ruin it for me in any way. Mm-hmm. I had uh, my, an old boss of mine. He was a, biggest madonna fan every time she had a new album come out he would buy multiple copies of it on different formats he had it on on vinyl on cd on i'm sure he has it on cassette as well if that was possible and like when there would be different versions so like there i would try to poke fun at him about madonna stuff like that and he would just be like i don't care like there's literally nothing you could say that will insult me about this (laughs) it's it's some and it's something that she sort of um cultivates herself in the way she presents her image and whatever it's just like needing approval is not part of the formula with her Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh I I thought the you know we're talking about the the sort of the, the clickiness of the dancers mm-hmm. in in that aspect. I thought it was definitely really funny where Madonna had to repeatedly uh ask the dancers to stop bullying the only straight dancer yeah. of the group <laughs> who was only like 18. I that shocked me too when I realized that. So I don't know if you know, I'm sure you know, and a few, a few years ago, there's a documentary that came out called Strike a Pose, which is catching up with uh, six of the seven dancers 25 years later, and just sort of their highs and lows in between. And um, Oliver is the the one straight guy who talks about, you know, the the world that was opened up to him by these, these guys, he, you know, he, he comes there, this really young guy, very tough, uh, from New Orleans, very um, homophobic and whatever, and that these guys became his family and sort of expanded his world in that way. He's focused on a lot in the movie just because I think that's the narrative that she decided was the most interesting um, of all the dancers. Also fun fact, her brother in his book says that Madonna always makes sure that at least one of the dancers is straight. No reason uh, for the entire, for the entirety of the tour. So, which I find interesting and could just imagine what went on, but uh yeah it's also it was interesting to i'd never seen strike a pose before i watched it this week also in preparation for this i I figured i should finally get around to it and it is interesting to see these guys didn't seem to realize that madonna is a business she's not a person Mm -hmm. and so whatever betrayal they felt especially the three of them who brought a lawsuit against her um and then i guess i think they thought that she would react the way a friend would in trying to resolve everything. But actually she reacted like a corporation, which was basically to say, this is what you signed. This is what the rule is. And this is what my rights are. And then I think they were, I think they all received a settlement, an undisclosed settlement. And then, you know, we're cut off from her for life. Um, yeah. And, and watching the documentary, seeing them talking about her 25 years later, it's, it does still seem to be that they don't realize that she is, a business and not a person to the point that um, she doesn't even like Kevin stay is the most successful of all of them in terms of what he's done since that movie. And he was one of the ones who brought a suit against her and she never spoke to him again. 
but she also never like blacklisted him. She didn't, you know, tell anybody else not to work with him. He went on to great success because she's that impersonal that she's not even <laughs> doing you dirty, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I do want to touch on the the, the homophobia aspect mm-hmm. of this movie. There, there's a couple scenes in, in particular, and I think these days, especially, uh, you know, I think everyone sort of perks up when they hear the the f word mm-hmm. being dropped very casually. Uh, and this movie, you know, specifically one of the dancers talks about uh, the other dancers in in that manner. Yeah. But then you also hear Madonna as well. And yeah. I found a really interesting article. Um, that w- that's called Examining the Politics of Madonna's Truth or Dare 30 Years Later. And I'm just going to read this uh, one little uh, paragraph here. For one, the movie is riddled with gay slurs. It's impossible not to flinch now, watching Madonna drop so many F-bombs. At one point, she tells one of her dancers, I wouldn't hire fags that hate women. Mm-hmm. I kill fags that hate women. In fact, I kill anyone who hates women. Cringeworthy though it is, the scene is a reflection of the 90s as a period of reclaiming historically hostile language and a reminder that allies at the time were permitted to do the same. By the end of the decade, even the ladies of Sex and the City were using the other F word. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know what's going on with Gen Z. I can promise you that secretly, when straight people aren't around, we're all using that word with each other. Mm-hmm. When, you, when none of you, you know, baristas with humanities degrees who can't get a job and need to police everyone else's language are around, we, we call each other whatever we want. But um, yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that Madonna was like openly hanging out with gay men at a time when that was not nearly the the cultural cachet that it is now, you know, and, and in fact was probably something she was warned against doing. Madonna was also openly, um, uh, I, is fraternizing the right word. I mean, she was, she was battling AIDS phobia basically by being seen with people who were HIV positive and not being afraid to be physically in contact with them and all that stuff. And then her tour had this very, very heavy messaging about raising awareness about AIDS and HIV, which was a lot thornier back then than it is now and got her into more hot water that, than it would now that we don't really remember. So there's a lot of context uh, that you need if if there is you know scenes in that movie that uh, rub you the wrong way. I completely forget about it because you know I, I, I've seen it so so many times and and I remember it in its uh, in its context. So it doesn't it does that stuff doesn't um, make a, an impression on me. Also, I have no soul. So <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the key aspect is reclaiming historically hostile language yeah. in, in that paragraph in, in the same way other marginalized groups will use, you know, slurs amongst themselves, but not in a pejorative way. Yeah. I don't find that that's a really helpful conversation though, only because everyone mm-hmm. has their own opinions on it and yeah. uh, p- everyone will always have their own opinions on whether or not you're reclaiming language in a, in a way that's constructive or suggestive or, 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 or um, helpful in any way. Uh, mm. I just know that no one was ever going to mistake Madonna for a homophobe. <laughs> it, yeah, it, like yeah. blind dead people would not mistake Madonna for a homophobe. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, just the visibility of them in that movie is so groundbreaking in a way that was just not happening. I mean, this movie comes out the same year as fried green tomatoes, where you have these two women who are clearly in a relationship and the, the length that that movie goes to to avoid talking about it is hilariously funny. And I say that as someone who loves that movie, mm-hmm. but it was, it was not polite to talk about. 
And and sort of on the, the the flip side of you know if people find an issue with the language, Madonna also includes a scene of the gay pride parade march yes. at a time when the gay pride parade is not what it is today, where you know people bring their kids, it's a huge family affair, yeah. and you know all the corporate sponsors are there and all that sort of stuff. It really still was at that time very much a protest yes. march and very much and, uh, with, with with the messaging about AIDS and uh, everything political around that being very prevalent in the parade as well because she, she yeah, shows well, the moment of a silent silent uh, a moment of silence right yeah and and her, it's her dancers that are there yeah. attending the parade and you see them visibly in tears watching you know all the floats go by not not really floats yeah. but all the people marching by yeah. uh and the impact that that probably had at the time i don't even know if i knew that there was such thing as a gay pride parade when i saw that movie and i'm sure that that's the truth for a lot of people who saw that film i mean i saw that movie at a shopping mall in the suburbs you know, like it's a big deal that a movie with the content that it has played as wide as it did. And a lot of that's because of her. You know, Madonna gets a lot of crap for cultural appropriation. You know, the way she co-opts uh, ballroom dance culture into Vogue and all that stuff. But the truth is, she opened up a lot of our worlds uh, and and in in her version of it, used her celebrity for good. I mean, I got an English degree because of Madonna. So, <laughs> you know. She definitely affected my life in more positive ways than negative. That's for sure. There you go. Yeah. yeah speaking of the, the ballroom culture, it, it's interesting. I only watched uh, Paris is burning a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and now having that in my mind, because it's such an amazing documentary mm-hmm. seeing this and just being like, Oh yeah, it's absolutely where Madonna got her entire image from basically. Yeah. Of for that, that period. Era. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. and those bo- movies both come out the same year. I actually didn't see Paris is burning for the first time until like last year or the year before. Um, but they were two of the, I mean, I think Paris is burning was nine or 10 on the critics best list of the year. And truth or dare was right after it. They were both highly acclaimed truth or dare of course made a ton of money. It was the most successful documentary of all time until bowling for Columbine. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was a big deal, which is also what inspired lawsuits was the fact that it, ma- yeah. it made so much money. It made money. Yeah. yeah. It's it's definitely interesting watching this movie through today's lens. And, and I'm not talking about the language. It's more talking about you know, the, the, the general acceptance that, you know, most of, you know, North America has made towards the gay community mm-hmm. in the last 30 plus years, almost, um, and how this just seems so quaint to me like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, she's just hanging out with their dancers and, you know, they're playing silly drinking games and stuff like that. But, but realizing how just literally ground shaking, earth shattering, Several of these scenes were, especially, you know, when showing two dancers making yeah. out, and, you know. And it's a really sexy kiss, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also, I mean, and also making Truth or Dare popular. I mean, who plays that game after the age of 12? But anyway, <laughs> and I'm sure that that was her saying, I don't think Madonna actually had that much time to hang around with her dancers. So I'm sh- pretty sure that she was like, all right, everyone, we're filming today and this is what we're going to do. But um, also uh, something that... Uh, is more connected to today is the fact that the identity of these dancers, the fact that you have a lot of like black and Latino from New York, you know, like gay and when gay made it into popular culture for a long time, it was always white and suburban. So is the case with my other two selections and most of the selections of most of the movies that sort of pierce the culture around that time would have been the same. And I think it is also worth pointing out that Madonna has, um, 
guys who basically look like the cast members of Pose or something like that. You know, something that we associate mm-hmm. more with an opening up of the of representation now than would have would have been had uh, at the time. Yeah, I I quite enjoy this movie despite the fact that I have you know faults with the Madonna cult of personality <laughs> aspect of it. Well, but this is her that, at her brattiest too. Although yes. I much prefer this Madonna to wise Madonna because that's also a construct <laughs> like Madonna yeah. sharing her Kabbalah wisdom with us. It's also a construct and it's a bit <laughs> of a pill. I prefer her just being shitty to everybody because she's better than everybody because she is there's Madonna and there's everybody else. That's the rule. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it really does feel like she's a child like like a literal child in this movie just about the fact that she's i think 30 or 31 years yeah. old at the time of this t- tour yeah. and you know she's hanging out with a bunch of 19 and 20 year yeah. olds yeah and she's the one acting like a child yeah and also but also saying things like they fulfilled the need in me to be mothered and all that stuff it's like oh good lord <laughs> i mean i rolled my eyes watching this movie now much more than i ever did before but i still i adore it and also you know this is the thing about celebs that we loved when we were kids you watch them in at, at, at their high point and you remember being that young too. And it makes you wistful for when, I mean, I loved my life when Madonna was all I thought about, you know, I kind of miss mm-hmm. that being the biggest thing that I had to think about and talk about. And as ridiculous as the concept of Madonna wanting to be a mother to all these dancers, I, I would not be shocked if several of the dancers probably felt maybe for one of the first times in our lives, a familial aspect because they could be themselves and not have to worry about, you know, what their disapproving family sure. members feel or if their other employers found out if they were gay. Or, well, and also or they're or dancers stuff, and, they're, and dancers mm-hmm. spend their lives being disapproved of. I mean, you're always, yeah. you're always at a cattle call with a million other people. You're almost always getting cut. So when you do get chosen, you do feel special and they are very young and Madonna's dazzling and you know she's already extremely famous so it's not like it's not like they're coming up with her that they become famous all together right so mm-hmm. of course they they feel um again you know they mistake her for a person as opposed to a business and i'm <laughs> sure that whatever madonna what affection she gave them was real but i think madonna is one of those people where she means it at the time but yeah. when she's ready to move on she's ready to move on and it's interesting in strike a pose one of the dancers lewis is the only one who at the end says, you know what, guys? She doesn't owe us anything. She gave us this opportunity and we did with it well, whatever we did, good or bad. And this is a guy who's been through rehab and I have a feeling he went through a lot of stages of mm, finding his own inner peace in order to come to terms with whatever he felt he was owed versus whatever you know he was given and what he deserved, all that stuff. So uh, I, f- I find that also uh, very interesting. Jeffrey, you are being ridiculous. Can you tell if you're having a nervous breakdown? This sex thing has got completely out of hand. Dad, I've stopped having sex. Jeff stopped having sex. No sex? You mean just safe sex. My dear, what you need is a relationship. A relationship? Hmm. And shoes. Well, speaking of moving on, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we spent enough time talking about Madonna mm-hmm. and I would love to talk about Jeffrey. And as I, once again, as I said in the intro, emphasis on the comedy about AIDS. And, you know, once again, much like how I was saying the Madonna movie might seem quaint now, I feel like something like this would be quite quaint now as well. Yeah. But I'm sure in 1995, this was also pretty earth shattering of you know, you're not supposed to, you know, make light of AIDS. People are literally dying of this. And of course they do finally sort of address the emotional root 
to this movie near the end and when everything kind of comes crashing down around Jeffrey's yeah. world. But you know, so much about this movie is literally laugh out loud, hilarious, campy, over the top. There's so much also I see of like that we, we see in uh, like drag race culture mm-hmm. coming from movies like this to the, the, the style, the look, the feel, all that campiness is there. Yeah. Cause it's Paul Rudnick who is just the most wonderful writer. He went on to have a much bigger hit with in and out two years ago, which he wrote. He also wrote Adam's family values, which is the funnier of the two Adam's family movies. He was just hysterical. And then if you've ever read his movie reviews for premier magazine, which he wrote under the pseudonym of Libby Gelman Waxner, uh, they are also hysterically funny. My favorite observation of him, of his, that uh, Tom Cruise in interview with a vampire looked like Sarah Jessica Parker after she'd taken off a knitted hat. Oh so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I love, I love Jeffrey at the time. I rem- I remember renting it and watching it and I knew why I wanted to see it. I mean, emotionally, instinctively, I knew why I wanted to see it, but I think the first time I watched it consciously, I was thinking about just how wonderfully funny it was because regardless of whether or not I knew I was gay, I did know that I loved that kind of backhanded humor. Um, the sort of meta-ness of it, the talking to the audience is something that doesn't quite work for me as well now. That's a very 90s indie movie mm-hmm. thing, but everything else about it, I just adored. I liked its flippancy, and I love the idea of treating a very serious subject with humor without undercutting the seriousness of the subject, because that's just very human to me, because in real life, that's how we get through everything traumatic about life, basically, is to be... is to try not to take it too seriously or try not to take ourselves too seriously while taking the real problem seriously. Basically. It almost sort of felt like, uh, if I imagine a lot of people, if they're listening to this episode, they probably have watched sex in the city. It reminded me of the, the first few episodes of sex in the city where they would do this sort of like, uh, cut to people that Carrie was writing about and they would give a direct address to the camera sort of thing. And that's what this movie really felt like to me. That was, there's a whole world of New York minutes. humor about that from that time. Sex and the City premieres only three years after this, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's very much of its time. And and then you have the cast as well. The whole cast is like famous New York actors. Patrick Stewart is the only one who of the famous people who has like a major role. Everybody else, and obviously Steven Weber, because he would have already been on TV. Uh, everyone else is like a famous New York actor who had a day, basically, to spare. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, I'm just going to quickly run through some of the names in this movie. You've got Christine Baranski, Victor Garber, Brian Batt, Cameron Mannheim, Sigourney Weaver, Kathy Najimy. Uh, who else? We Jerry got here? from Nathan Succession, Lane. J. Smith Cameron. Oh, yeah. yeah Olympia Dukakis, uh, Kevin Nealon. Mm-hmm. And then, like, even more, you even, like, you have stand-up comedian uh, Jeffrey Ross, who clearly was not, you know, famous at this time, was basically playing man number two in the movie theater or whatever his character right. name was. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but uh, but still quite quite an impressive cast. Yeah. It really sort of felt like this was director Christopher Ashley being like, "Hey, all my fellow acting friends, can you come and do a day on my movie?" Yeah, or and or they knew Paul Rudnick because he's already an established Broadway writer. I mean, the play had already been on Broadway, and he'd also I think it's called I Hate Hamlet. He had a, he had that play before that. So these mm. these the New York theater people would have already known them. And this is a rare case of Sigourney being attached to her sort of New York theater, uh, the that side of her, which is like the major side of her, although we know her as a glamorous movie star. And mm. I'm pretty sure she shot that whole thing in one day as well. And she's so great. I love Deborah. Uh, I love that whole thing. And I had the pleasure of doing this play um, 
12 years later and I played the Patrick Stewart part. They wouldn't give it to me because I was too young, but I begged. And then the guy <laughs> they had in mind dropped out. So I got to play that and I had a wonderful time. That's actually how I met Daniel Krolik was doing Jeffrey. Oh, yeah, wow. Interesting. He played the Nathan Lane part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. I can definitely see the two of you in those roles. Yes, absolutely. No, we were <laughs> we were great, actually. I, I, will, I will not tell a lie. And there's one particular scene that is also in the film that I love watching because I remember having sort of one of those breakthrough moments where you figure out acting, you know, where you just or like where something you learned in class finally sinks in and you figure it out. And I remember having that kind of breakthrough during that show. And that felt great. There's also a small performance by David Thornton, who is Cindy Lauper's husband, who is one of the guys at the beginning that he's in bed with, you know, who, who wants his like entire mm. medical history. Oh, yeah. that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want the apartment Do or not? Apartment yeah. That was a great line. <laughs> and also that, that wonderful cutaway, that hilarious cutaway where, you know, they, they kiss in the gym and then it cuts away to, in theory, two couples watching the movie in a movie theater and the guys like making vomiting noises while the girls think it's awe. I remember that happening all the time. That's also something that people would not believe now because it would never happen now because we're all like watching everyone fist each other on TV and and movies and all that stuff. But, (laughs) but in the nineties I would go to the movies and there would hardly be any kind of action and guys would audibly start making gross out noises in the theater just because they needed to make sure that we knew that, you know, they weren't into this and that they were, if they were there with girls, they needed to make sure their girlfriends didn't think they were the least bit gay. And I remember seeing that movie, the object of my affection with um, Jennifer Aniston. And these guys made that noise uh, during that movie. I think the boy, cause the boys kiss her. They're just in bed together. And this adorable little, like 12 year old girl was sitting near, near me. She wasn't with me. And she had like pigtails, just delightful. And she just screamed, Oh, grow up when they started to these grown men. And I just, I don't know who that girl was. I still think of her and I, I still love her dearly. And not long after my friend and I went to see go where Scott Wolf and Jay Moore don't even kiss in that movie. And guys started making noise during that and inspired by that, that girl of before my friend just screamed, Oh, grow up, you know, (laughs) no, we were much older. And so, yeah. So that's, I mean, to it, give you an idea of the culture of the time and, and, mm-hmm. and the reason why certain movies meant something to me, given what I was dealing with in daily life. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I watched Jeffrey Furso of all these movies. And when that scene happened, obviously it's, it's a, it's a funny mm-hmm. scene, but when watching truth or dare, when the two dancers are making out, I was picturing, I was like, I bet you literally in the audience that cut scene from Jeffrey is happening at this exact yeah. moment. I don't even remember knowing what the noise was. I remember people screaming. Like I remember girls screaming. I don't remember. I'm sure there were guys who made gross out noises too. It was like um, that, you know, when you have that feeling where the blood rushes to your ears and you can't hear anything, that's how it was mm-hmm. for me. Probably because I was having a reaction to it that I wasn't articulating to myself. I'd like to kind of talk about the fact that the two main actors in this movie, Stephen mm-hmm. Weber and Patrick Stewart, are, of course, the, you know, straight, they're straight men in real mm-hmm. life, both playing gay actors. Whereas, you know, you also have um, uh, Brian Batt, who is playing uh, Patrick Stewart's partner yeah. in this, is a gay man, yeah. uh, whom most people probably know from Mad yeah. Men as, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Sal. Yeah. Uh, he was the the graphic designer for them. I think he's the uh, only one too. I think Michael T. Weiss is straight in real life too. 
I, I believe yeah. so as well. I, I forgot to look that up, but I, I, I think I saw something about yeah. that. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of curious about how that sort of plays out where this is, you know, such a queer film mm-hmm. with, you know, obviously at the time it's, it's only been what in the last five years that people have actually started caring about hiring actual queer actors to play queer yeah. roles. Yeah. Well, it's also because it's only until recently that queer actors are willing to play queer roles. That's not really a popular mm-hmm. thing I'm supposed to say. Um, yeah, it didn't, it, I mean, it, it was, known and noted on at the time because i remember talking about these things with my friends i'm a little bit older when this movie comes out i'm 18 so i'm you know again this movie made me come out and then i had a lot of a lot more friends and blah 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 uh it wasn't a controversial topic because the idea was that you had a famous person putting themselves on the line by appearing in something with this subject matter um and that was the thing that made an impression And when it came to famous people, like people who could sell a movie, you didn't really have a choice other than straight people, mostly white people. So thankfully that's what's changed, um, which is that you have someone like Matt Bomer nowadays. And so you have an option because ultimately uh, casting, unfortunately, is never about who is most right for the part. It's just about people believing that they're going to be able to sell the movie based on who's in it and they don't really care about anything else. So Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a, it, in a way, it's up to audiences to make more than just straight white men famous, um, <laughs> which is a lot to ask. But uh, so yeah, that's that's something that makes more of an impression on people watching it now. At the time, I just remember loving it because I think Stephen Weber is a snack and a half. So you know, <laughs> and also he play, you know, he's he's a New York actor and he knows this world extremely well. So he doesn't play it like a straight guy congratulating himself on his open mindedness. You know. He plays Jeffrey's vulnerability exceptionally well. I have no trouble believing him in this role at all. I think Michael T. Weiss is more of like um, a gay man's fantasy of a straight guy who's actually gay, uh, <laughs> although he's good. While as um, Stephen Weber is like, he's absolutely the real deal. And also, unpopular opinion, some people are just better actors than other people. Some people are better at recreating a human experience than other people, regardless of whatever their background is. I also think of this when I think of Eric McCormick on Will and Grace, because I just have a hard time imagining other actors being as good in that role as he was. Mm -hmm. However, there is something to be said for um, the market of acting and the fact that, you know, so many gay men pay the same tuition at acting school and go through all the paces and then find that they're not able to get hired. And then when there are the few roles that they would be considered for, they go to people who aren't, you know, who, who don't have that qualification. So the controversy over it is completely under understandable. Um, but uh, on, on a pure, like, on a pure principle point of view, I, I don't want, I want, I would like to think that any actor who is good enough can play any role, but you know, mm-hmm. this is also something that people have to make a living at and that's where the differences come in. Yeah. Yeah. Totally understand that one. Uh, I, I sort of appreciate it in this movie, how we also get a wide cross section of queer lifestyles mm-hmm. because so often, you know, in, in movies, there's only one gay character. And so they inevitably become sort of a stereotype in and of themselves. But as we get more of these expansive ensemble type pieces where there are multiple queer yeah. people, then that allows room. Yes. You can have one character who might seem on the surface, a little more stereotypical, but you also have a wide variety of other characters as well. So it sort of balances itself out. Yeah. And I really appreciate that about this movie is, is we really get to see a wide variety of different kinds of men and why you understand maybe like, Oh, the, the idea that I think a lot of 
small-minded people might be like, oh, two men are gay, so they must be attracted to each other. To right. each other. Well, no, we have nothing in common. We're not alike at all. This isn't who I'm into normally, all that sort of yeah. stuff. And here we get that spectrum. Yeah, and also the fun of people who are stereotypes and are more than just their stereotype. I mean, Patrick Stewart's character loves he, – he's an interior decorator, which is sort of stock <laughs> gay character number one. Mm-hmm. He loves being an interior decorator, and he loves the joke – of his being a joke, but then he's also so much more beyond that. The same with Darius being a Broadway dancer who is in cats of all things. Um, and then Jeffrey, Jeffrey is presented as kind of, he's very, um, like with his varsity jackets and whatever, he's very preppy. It's, and it's part of the characters being in hiding basically, which is that he's hiding from the modern world and his being a bit vanilla is the result of that. And then of course, uh, Steve is the, um, Jim bunny, uh, stereotype. And, Paul Rudnick just basically wants to say, like, you're relegating us to these stereotypes isn't what's offensive. It's the fact that you don't let us also be people at the same time um, mm-hmm. because these stereotypes exist for a reason. It's also a time, you know, he's ta- this is part of the film's um, AIDS activism is that people were writing AIDS off as something that only happened to a certain kind of person. And the fight back is this certain kind of person doesn't deserve to die just because you don't take their life seriously or that you don't hang out with these kinds of people. And, you know, and and I remember a lot of conversations about AIDS being like, oh, it's so sad when a child gets it from a blood transfusion. It's like, no, it's also sad when someone gets it from having sex. Like having sex Mm -hmm. is not something that people deserve to be condemned for. All of us have sex. Well, most of us, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people have sex. And a lot of people make mistakes or don't when it comes to having sex. Neither of those things deserve to end in death, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's also something that the film is in some way addressing without being too heavy handed about it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that as well. I'm sort of curious about, you know, I, I feel like the, the height of the AIDS crisis from what I saw was more of like the late 80s sort of thing. And it sort of portrays it as, I don't want to call it a new mm-hmm. thing, but it definitely sort of feels like it's more of a fresh uh, disease that's, that's being spread in 1995 rather than, in my opinion, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, the George Bush administration of like 1988 yeah. sort of Well, thing. he wrote the play earlier, don't forget. The play, if the movie comes okay. out in 95, the play was probably in 93. Um, what mm-hmm. he's actually talking about even more is the way in which the culture, by the mid-90s is when AIDS activism, like fundraisers and celebrities with their red ribbons becomes a really big deal and the sort of cultural shift in the way that it exists in society versus in the eighties. And I get, this is something that I remember from when I was young. So if someone's going to, you know, contradict how I remember it, that's totally fair. I remember the late eighties being much more fear. Like I remember being a kid and people not knowing how it spread and, Oh, I heard you can get it from toilet seats, blah, blah, blah. By the time Mm -hmm. I'm entering high school, I remember knowing everything about how to get it, how to avoid it, all that stuff, but it's still um, incurable, right? And so that's when you have, uh, you know, the prevalence of Elizabeth Taylor and then Madonna, Sharon Stone, late a bit later, uh, all these famous people who are taking part in celebrity fundraisers. This is something that's poked fun at in Jeffrey with Christine Baranski and the hoedown for AIDS that she hosts. Oh, I, lo- right. I love that. And quote. I feel like that <laughs> culture, particularly New York city, having been completely ravaged by the disease and especially the Broadway, like the theater community um, in the eighties. And then all of a sudden we're dealing with it with all these like glamorous fundraisers where I'm sure people had cynical ideas of just how much funds were being raised. 
Um, so I think that that's a lot of the impetus for, for the, the, the background of this, uh, movie. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of much like, uh, truth or dare, this also, you know, features a sequence taking place during a, a pride mm-hmm. parade. And, and I sort of like how they're able to poke fun of all the different sort of groups yeah. of, of queer people that attend this, including the best line of when they're doing the roll call of uh, the gay ba- black Republicans. Yeah. And then you literally hear tumble. <laughs> yeah. There's no one there. <laughs> Funny enough. Yeah. 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 That's changed since then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I will I will never for the life of me understand log cabin Republicans. It makes zero yeah, sense. I, I don't know. I try my best to pretend that American politics don't exist, but it's hard to avoid. Yeah. It is, yes. Uh, but either way, it, it, it was nice. And you, you, you get that great scene with Olympia Dukakis and, and her son. Oh, sorry, uh, her, her daughter. daughter yeah. uh, Angelique, yeah, uh, is that her name? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, which, I mean, the the terminology happening in that scene is something that wouldn't fly today, but that's, mm-hmm. but that's part of why it's funny is because she's so, she's so offensive while being so loving and supportive of, of her daughter. And it's also, I mean, it's yeah. just Olympia Dukakis again with a day to spend on this film and uh, she's hysterical. Yeah. And, and I, I think that it sort of kind of goes back to the, the Minata aspect of, uh, you know, being an ally at the time it's sort of a different set of rules for what the the rest of the general public wears. She's not using the terminology to be cruel or mean. Yeah. She's doing it in a more of an endearing sort yeah. of way. Well, I mean, and also the way we, uh, the way we position these things in greater society has changed over time. You know, the way we, people who, who are outside of whatever it is that society calls normal. I don't know what that is. Anyone who falls under queer. I mean, the way that they interact with, popular culture and whatever you consider mainstream society to be that's changed over time. So the ways in which we talk about it is, is going to change and, and the acceptable ways to talk about it is going to change as well. Mr. Hall was way harsh. He gave me a C minus. <laughs> well, he gave me a C, which drags down my entire average. Hello. There was a stop sign. I totally paused. You tried driving in platforms. Oh, should I write them a note? Ew! Get off of me! Ugh! As if! Cher's got attitude about high school boys. It's a personal choice everyone has got to make for themselves. Cher's saving herself for Luke Perry. Cher, you're a virgin? I mean, I'm not prude. I'm just highly selective. I mean, you see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet. All right, let us move on to the last movie mm-hmm. of the bunch, and that is Clueless, directed by Amy Heckerling from 1995 as well, which definitely, of the three, is the most well-known, most mm-hmm. famous, probably just about everyone has seen that. And obviously, I think you know the biggest crime is the fact that Amy Heckerling has probably directed two of the most influential teen movies of the one of the 80s and one of the 90s, and struggled to get feature film work afterwards. Obviously she's had a long career yeah. in television. She struggled like, to make anything good since too. I liked that movie Loser yeah. that she made with Mina Suvari. I enjoyed that film, but everything else, I mean, that one with Michelle Pfeiffer is terrible and her vampire comedy is terrible as well. She also had Look Who's Talking <laughs> as well, which was a big hit for her yes. as well. Um, but you know, if I made one movie as good as Clueless, I would die a happy man. It's the Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. of teen movies for me. It's so good. <laughs> it helps that I was 18 when it came out. So of course it speaks directly to me although that's part of the movie's skill because it is about 
you know, cushy Beverly Hills teenagers. So why does it speak to me? I have nothing to do with these people. And yet um, she adapts Jane Austen so incredibly well without being in any way exact, obviously, because she adapts it to modern times. I did a Jane Austen course in university and uh, our professor, who is now a very good friend of mine, um, showed us Clueless uh, on our very last class because she considered it the best Jane Jane Austen adaptation. Yeah, yeah I have often heard that from other, you know, English majors as well. So it's it's sort of shocking that, you know, you can transport a classic source material and update it to the modern mm-hmm. world and it have the exact same impact it would have had at its release too, but be able to speak to the intended target audience. Yeah, and because this movie was successful, still- everyone else tried to yeah. do it after. So you had like 10 yeah. things I hate about you and um I think uh, there's that one with Kirsten Dunst that's based on Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, and yeah, and then there's like oh the that's Othello right. Version. So there's a million of these movies oh. after, and some of them yeah. are charming. Nothing can beat Clueless. One of the things she does exceptionally well, which is truly showing her skill, is that she also adapts the tone the same. Which is that in Emma, Jane Austen is teasing at how hopeless Emma Woodhouse is, but she's also she also adores her at the same time. And that's something that you have in Clueless as well, which is that she's not afraid to show the airheaded qualities of Cher, but she also, she's also a very endearing character. She, she's not ignorant. She's just a product of her world and of her culture, but she's actually in her, in her version of it, thoughtful and well-intentioned and just clueless basically. Mm-hmm. And you have this magnificent performance by Alicia Silverstone in the lead who yeah. apparently, you know, bore a lot of the qualities of the character. Like um, she actually thought it was pronounced Hadians and Amy Heckerling told the crew, <laughs> don't correct her because yeah. I want her to say it in this incredibly guileless way that she says it in that scene. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and so it's sort of, you know, this one I was the most curious about why you had picked it originally. And I think when you were you were speaking off the top and you were talking about the the casual acceptance of the gay character in this mm-hmm. movie where it was just matter of factly done and it wasn't an issue, wasn't a problem, all that sort of stuff. Obviously it sort of falls into the stereotype of, of gay best friend later yeah. on. Um but you know, I, I think on the surface is it's clearly a very well intentioned move and a smart move by Heckerling to make something that sort of seems like it's going to be become a mountain, but ends up being a bit of a molehill instead. Yeah. I mean, and it's based on, uh, I think his name is Frank Christian and Emma, who she is in love with and then, or she thinks she's in love with. And it turns out he's been secretly engaged the entire time. So the modern version of him having been completely unavailable to her in a way that she didn't realize it was that he's gay. Um, Mm -hmm. I am very fortunate in that I, I was not in like any kind of threatening friend group when I was uh, a teenager. I had basically had friends who were waiting for me to say it first before they were willing to talk about it. So it's not like I needed a movie to soothe me in any way to make me feel, um, uh, safer in some way. Cause I felt pretty safe as it was, but it made such an impression on me the first time I saw this movie that when she finds out, oh my God, he's been gay this whole time. It's not about him having been duplicitous in any way. It's about her having been a bonehead. So she's not approaching it from the point of view that I'm normal and I'm doing everything right. And this guy screwed me over. It's that, oh my God, I can't believe that I thought I was into this guy, but I wasn't really looking at him for who he really was. That's a really, really Mm -hmm. respectful way for the character to behave in a way that 
for many reasons I was not expecting and not used to. Particularly, teen movies were, uh, you know, I grew up on them. They were just the most toxic stuff that anyone had to grow up with. It's no wonder my entire generation are all (laughs) completely traumatized because we saw this world that we were supposed to eventually fit into of like, you were either a hot girl or a jock guy and everything else was like pushed off a cliff into a lake of fire. I mean, the stakes were so high in teen movies for acceptance. Gays were particularly uh, the butt of gay men, especially were the particular were the butt of jokes in those movies uh, in, in more ways than in any other kind of film. So particularly for it to be in a teen movie that she finds out that he's gay and it's all about her not having paid attention while as he is actually, a, a, for lack of a better term, a normal person in who who's, you know, part of a normal society um, that that made a huge impression on me, despite the fact that like, we never really get to know him all that. Well, he's not someone that anyone wants to be. I mean, that whole kind of like um, rat pack style that he's got is not something I ever aspired <laughs> to. It's very West coast mm-hmm. gay guy, um, but he's so funny. And, uh, and we're also not supposed to get to know him all that well, because he's a device. He's not a, he's not supposed to be a real person. So I, I, I don't have a problem mm-hmm. with that. I just mean that it didn't, it didn't hit me somewhere deep and emotional just because I love that character in some way. I just loved that having a gay friend was a normal thing because in movies it never was. Yeah. And and he also gets this great moment, this character, uh, to sort of also be a bit of a hero at the same time because there, there's a scene near the end of the movie after uh, we learn that he's gay and Sharon, this Elton character at the mall, and Brittany Murphy's character is kind of being uh, assaulted a little bit by right. two men. And he, he runs up and like pushes them away and grabs her and walks away. And, you know, a normal movie – you know, the next scene would have been a hate crime being committed against him, but it's not, it's just, he gets the hero moment and that's, that's the impression that we're left. Yeah. Which is also uh, directly adapted from Emma. There's a part where Harriet, I I think is her name is uh, um, attacked by, again, for lack of a better term, gypsies by the side of the road and Frank Churchill saves her. Uh, Yeah. I also love, I mean, the scene where he brings over some like it hot and sporadicus for them to watch, (laughs) which is supposed to, you know, is also showing the movie lays the The clues out pretty bare, even though I was young enough that it was still a surprise to me when we find out. But that's, you know, Amy Heckerling having a good time with her audience. And even the way he reacts when Cher's trying to get cozy with him and he's just like, oh, I think I think she doesn't know what's going on here. And that he he politely leaves without like freaking out or, you know, cause mm-hmm. he kind of, he, he loves her and feels bad for her and wants to stay friends. I mean, the whole thing, there's so, there's so much affection at the same time that the humor is so cutting and witty in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or rewatching it in today's lens, you know, from the very first scene, you can, you can tell that something is, is different about this character yeah. and you realize pretty early on that he's definitely a gay man. And, you know, by the time you get to the, the scene of him being like, we're doing a Tony Curtis yeah. double feature, which, which made me, burst I mean, the idea laughing. of someone saying, sit on my bed for three hours, five, whatever th- one movie's three hours. The other one's like a, a healthy two, at least uh, while we yeah. watch these movies is his, I mean, share Horowitz watching Spartacus is one of the funniest things. And also like when you go back and watch it again, you notice like how he's chatting up the bartender when he takes her to that dance. And she's like, mm-hmm. look how he doesn't talk to any other girl <laughs> except for me. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so, so funny. I, I, I have seen this movie so many times and it still makes me laugh. It still takes me to such a good place. Yeah, I was definitely 
you know, curious about why you would pick this one because it'd been probably over 15 years since I'd last seen it. I'd only ever watched it the once. Obviously, I I've seen the most famous scenes over yeah. and over because they pop up so often in pop culture. But I was curious. I was like, yeah, I, I think there's a gay character yeah. in this, but I I I I, di- I couldn't remember to what extent. Uh, it sort of was infused into the movie's yeah. DNA. I mean, it's it's contrast to the other two is that this movie is not about my world, and yet it mm-hmm. is a movie in which I am a functioning part of someone else's world, and that made a great deal of him. That was very important to me when I was a teenager. While as Jeffrey is about my world, or at least it made me realize what my world was. And even Truth or Dare is my world because whether or not I wanted to be associated with these very scary dancers, Madonna was my world. You know, she was my soulmate mm-hmm. as far as I was concerned. I I knew exactly who she was and what made her tick. And I knew that she and I would be best friends. So that movie was my <laughs> world. While Clueless was not, teenage movies were never mm-hmm. my world. When you grow up, uh, gay or lesbian or queer in general, um, you very rarely are watching movies about you. You're watching uh, movies about other people that you're translating to be appropriate to you in some way, because you're dreaming of the male lead or whatever, whatever it is that works Mm. for you. And so to see a a movie where suddenly you're a part of things uh, that makes a, at at least for me at the time, it made a a great impression on me. I think, you know, the one thing that clueless does really well that so often filmmakers sort of forget is Sometimes when you make a movie hyper-specific about a specific type of person or group of people or things like that, that there's actually the universality Mm -hmm. in that. And when you do something where you're trying to appeal to everyone, that's when you end up failing because who wants to feel like they're everyone? They want to feel specific. And that's where Clueless really succeeds is you have this very hyper-specific, you know, valley girl sort Mm -hmm. of thing. But in that we sort of see ourselves 1000%. And and I think it's because Amy Heckerling can see the good and the bad of being a Beverly Hills teen, which generally Mm -hmm. in teen movies is sold as aspirational. Most teen movies Mm -hmm. are set in California just because it's just cheaper to, you know, to be open about where you're filming as opposed to faking it being somewhere else. Uh, And, and so as a result, California teen is seen as like the thing everyone wants to be. And what she presents it as is not something negative but she makes it clear that it's its own world with its own rules uh Mm -hmm. that you've got to play by which is also very true to jane austen's emma so you don't necessarily watch these people enviably and you don't look down on them either you're just like that's that world that's how they operate i don't live that way i don't have skis to donate to the pismo beach disaster (laughs) you know and, and or where everyone lives in a mansion and and you know all that stuff so and what was it? I think it was, was it Dion's line? I'm pretty sure where she said, I, I've never had straight friends. No, no, it was Ty's uh, yeah, line. I've never, I've never had, had straight, straight friends, friends before. And they don't know what she's talking about because they're not, they're not drug culture, which I think would yeah. be very different with uh, Beverly Hills teens now. Or maybe, maybe even yeah. at the time it was not, <laughs> that was sort of Amy Heckerling being naive, but it is very funny that they don't quite get her because she's like the rough New Yorker. And, you know, by the way, rest in peace, Brittany Murphy. It's it's so lovely to remember her at her, you know, her dewiest and uh, at the beginning of what was a, a very tragically short career. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah for sure. I, I One little touch I really appreciate was how it seemed like every scene, more and more girls in the background had bandages yes. on their noses <laughs> from getting yeah. nose jobs. 
Which it was just like little touches like no. that, where it, it it almost felt like that was something from like not another teen movie sort of thing that they would do. Totally. And in, in this, you get that everyone getting rhinoplasty, where like it sort of makes sense. Yeah, they're all all their parents are, are lawyers and doctors and work in the film industry or things like that. So they all are rich. And for their sixteenth birthday, daddy buys them a nose uh, job. for their sixteenth birthday, or it's a spring break thing. I have a feeling that that joke is probably <laughs> because they all do it around the same time, like a, a uh, centered mm-hmm. around a certain school holiday. Yeah, you get a yeah. week off, so no one sees the, all the bruising yeah, on your yeah. face. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, all these there's so many tattoos on these teenagers, which I think more had to do with the fact that they didn't care about covering up the tattoos on their you know mid twenties actors right. yeah. than anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just I mean, again, Clueless is another one. I could just talk about that movie for hours. I think it's so great when she says, "Ty, how old are you?" She's like, "I'm I'll be 16 in May." Well, my birthday's in April, and as someone older, can I give you a word of advice? And like the seriousness with which she <laughs> delivers that line, it's so funny. It is so funny. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is infinitely quotable. Without a doubt. All right. uh, I I think, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot here a a little bit. Uh, You know, the the subject of this episode is good Mm -hmm. game movies. And obviously we talked about three influential ones. I'd love if there's any others that sort of pop in your head to sort of uh, counteract the, the normally uh, not so great ones you, you cover hilariously Mm -hmm. on your podcast that you want to, you know, thank you for the shout out. Um, Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot, um, especially from, um, from around the world uh, and especially from Latin America, a favorite director of mine is a guy named Marco Berger from B E R G E R from Argentina. I loved, he made a film called Plan B that's about two straight guys who fall in love. And as ridiculous as that premise sounds, uh, or maybe not, I don't know. Um, it's a magnificent film for the way uh, this extreme premise is dealt with so naturally and so charmingly. But I've I've liked all of his films that I've seen to varying degrees. He also did one called The Blonde One, uh, Unurubio, which I liked, and a movie called Taekwondo. Hawaii is also a very good film of his. Uh, I just suggest, especially people who want to watch gorgeous gay men in movies, uh, I highly su- uh, suggest his films. There's also a film uh, from, I believe also Argentina called End of the Century from 2019, Fin de Siglo by um, Lucio Castro, which is a really, really great uh, sexy movie. One of my favorites would be Stranger by the Lake by Alain Giraudy from France. That's the sexiest movie ever made. Uh, and absolutely filthy, but also like Hitchcockian level control of style and content and, um, and intensity. And, uh, what was the other one I was just thinking of? Oh, and weekend by Andrew Haig, uh, which depending on when you release this is about to be screened at the paradise, uh, which is also a really wonderful sort of like a gay lost in translation. Well, Excellent. That is a very comprehensive watch mm-hmm. list for anyone that's looking for some modern uh, queer mm-hmm. films for people to check out. So I really appreciate you uh, name dropping all of those. There, yes. And then, and then of course there's other movies that involve more of the spectrum than just gay men, but I don't care about those. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the bill. We yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Bill, I really appreciate you coming on today. It's a pleasure. I learned a lot from you and, and watching these three movies was, was a real treat. Well, I, I've always said I love uh, every time you ask me, I'm always happy to do it. So thank you for letting me come on here and as always ramble on for far too long. <laughs> no, it's all good. Now, I uh, I know that currently your podcast, BGM, Bad Game mm-hmm. Movies, is on a hiatus. Mm-hmm. You just finished your latest season. Right. What is the the plan for the show? Uh, we will come back. I'll be recording episodes over the summer. Um, I am, I'm, sur- I'm cur- excuse me, I am collecting my uh, list of guests right now for the next season. And uh, episodes should return in September. Nice. Well, I'm very excited for that. You had uh, some really interesting guests and, and hilarious episodes oh, uh, on this latest season. I was very happy to see that you did The Last of Sheila because that was a mm-hmm. movie I only watched like less than two months ago. And then it was like a few weeks later, you you did a, a podcast about yeah. it. And that made me very excited Bell, and more excited. I, I was actually a little worried. I was like, oh, no, it did. did Bill and his guest hate this movie, and then I listed the episode, and you're both nope. like, "This is probably the best movie." We've yeah, ever it's a good game movie. I like them. I'd never <laughs> seen it before. It was Matt's suggestion for the show, and he wanted to do it. And I was, you know, I'm I'm happy to let my guests um, choose, provided that the film is in some way relevant. And it is. It's a really good movie. It's also it's a '70s movie that is kind of like tacky enough to be yeah on our show. But I'm not sorry if if I if we watch something for the show and I like it, I'm not afraid to say so. I'm not going to be um, shitty on something on purpose. Uh, mm-hmm. Although we also will return to the kind of um, sort of grungy, low budget nonsense that we covered a lot more of in the past. Things have just changed because you know in the past I did the show solely with Mike and Dan. Um, but you know, it's been 10 years and our lives are busier and they're different. And I like to keep the the show going and, um, and I, and it didn't make us rich enough to quit our day jobs. So Mm. I, um, I grab them whenever they're available and, uh, and I'm grateful for the time that I do have with them, but they're busier. And so it just means the show had to change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Well, where can people find you and your show and what's the best way to do the podcast is anywhere that you can find podcasts. Uh, Just look up bad gay movies, bitchy gay men. And I am on the socials just under my name at Bill Antonio, Bill with one L on Twitter and Instagram. Well, I'll make sure to link to the show and to your accounts in the show notes, as always, for people to check that out and give you a follow because you are also an excellent Twitter follow. Well, thank as well. you very much. And then also, I always forget to mention thatshelf.com, which uh, our podcasts are both on. And I have the Criterion shelf on there that people can read, including the upcoming Pride column that I think you're contributing to. Did I see you sign up for something? Yes, yes I signed up for two That's things. Right. Hopefully I can uh, watch them and get them into you yeah, in time. You, uh, you'll be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> but as a great transition there, this has been a That Shelf podcast. Visit thatshelf.com for more great film discourse. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Do you have any favorite gay or queer films? Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you really like the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.